0: Hi, you're listening to the Yale Anesthesiology Podcast. Make sure to visit our show website so that you can take advantage of the links of the papers that will be mentioned during this recording. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Antonio Gonzalez and I'm thrilled to present our next guest. Dr. Amnon Berger is an obstetric anesthesiology fellow at Beth Israel Deacons Medical Center, and he's here to discuss his article titled Epidural Catheter Replacement Rates with Doral Puncture Epidural Labor Analgesia Compared with Epidural Analgesia Without Doral Puncture, a retrospective cohort study that was published in the International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesiology in 2022. Thank you, Dr. Berger, for being here with us today, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Antonio. It's really my honor and pleasure to join you today. I think that there is no denying that labor epidural analgesia provides the best labor pain relief, and that a working epidural is the best way to avoid unnecessary general anesthesia.
1: Yes, absolutely. I have to agree. Her actual anesthesia is the mainstay of labor anesthesia. Unlike other regional techniques such as paracervical pedendal blocks, these techniques safely provide continuous coverage for all stages of labor and delivery. If you look at the paper by Etuk and Wong in the reviewing and fences in anesthesia from 2020, they reviewed different options for conversion of labor analgesia epidural for intrapartum cesarean. Most importantly, they noted that only 7.7% of patients requiring an intrapartum cesarean delivery with a working epidural required a repeat procedure or general anesthetic. This is very significant, especially considering that 60% of cesarean deliveries are intrapartum and that more than 73% of laboring women in the U.S. requested an actual analgesia, which is a number that is, has only increased
0: since. Currently, uh, again, our main goal is to have a working epidural. And currently, we have three techniques for placing an epidural catheter, including traditional your traditional labor epidural, combined spinal epidural, and the dural puncture epidural, which is the the main focus of your research here. So combined spinal epidurals, or CSCs, have actually been
1: described for at least since 1937. It was first suggested and described in obstetric anesthesia in 1979 by Boundbridge, followed by Carey's use of the needle-through-needle technique in 1984. The techniques have varied and generally improved over the years and are reviewed in a great review article by Cook in Anesthesia in 2000. Importantly, as Cook notes, and this is likely true for dural puncture epidurals, much like CSEs, is that these cannot be considered two separately performed blocks because of the interplay between the spinal and epidural blocks. Borrowing from the development of CSC, dural puncture or DPEs, are most commonly performed using the needle-through-needle technique. An epidural needle is used to identify the epidural space using the loss of resistance technique. Once access is achieved to the epidural space, a spinal needle that is adequately longer than the epidural needle is threaded through the epidural needle until the dura is met and then punctured. After cerebrospinal fluid return is confirmed, the spinal needle is removed and then an epidural catheter is threaded and the epidural block is initiated. This can be achieved using any epidural needle with a spinal needle that is thinner and longer and there have been many kits that have been tailored for this purpose. In our institution, for example, we use a 90 millimeter or 3.5 inch 17 gauge 2E needle for epidural access, and then thread a 120 millimeter 26 gauge Girty Marks needle through it for the dual puncture.
0: So, how is it that this technique, procedurally speaking, differs from the CSE technique?
1: Well, much like with a CSE, the epidural and the subarachnoid spaces are accessed the same way with a DPE. However, when you perform a CSE, a spinal dose of medication is given into the subarachnoid space. With a DPE, we don't give any medication into the intrathecal space. The spinal needle is removed without administering that medication before the epidural catheter is threaded into the epidural space.
0: So you mentioned that CSEs predated the dural puncture epidurals. Why would a provider prefer to administer a CSE and not a DPE?
1: When you consider labor or epidural analgesia, I like to think of four main facets of this analgesic. One is the quality of the block. Two would be the time to achieve an adequate block. Three is the possibility of catheter failure for either continuing analgesia or conversion to a cesarean delivery. And four are the side effects that are associated with the procedure. As mentioned above, when performing a CSE, We cannot consider it to be two separate blocks even at the same time because they interact with each other, and the interaction also affects the four facets as well. When Nagat showed with his colleague in 1997 in the New England Journal of Medicine paper that CSEs were safe, but they did not find that they were more effective in reducing cesarean delivery rate or the requirement for epidural bolus by anesthesiologists. In 1998, Epen and colleagues showed that performing a CSE was associated with significantly lower catheter failures. And then in a beautiful review of 12,590 procedures over three years, Peter Pan and colleagues showed in their 2004 IJOA paper that catheter placed with the CSC technique were less likely to fail and require replacements. Neeson's review in 2013 and then simmons cochrane review in 2012 both showed similar results. When you compare CSCs to leal epidural analgesia without a drill puncture, CSCs produced analgesia more rapidly and reliably and were less likely to fail. However, we still have to consider point four, which are the side effects of the method used by the placement. In the case of CSEs, these are associated with a higher rate of maternal hypotension, fetal bradycardia, and then uterine hypertonus and techycystole, as well as maternal paroxys, which may not be encountered when you provide a DPE over a CSE.
0: So, from what you're telling me, or what I gather here, is that CSE is very reliable and the Probably the only downsides are these complications that you mentioned, these uh, hypotension, fetal bradycardia, and uterine hypertonus. Now, considering the advantage of the CSCs uh, and the downsides of the CSE, what is the advantage that the DPE provides?
1: So, as you just mentioned, while CSCs are generally safe, they carry increased risks that we just mentioned. It would be, for instance, contraindicated in mothers with cardiac disease and perhaps would be avoided in cases of fetal tracing in Category 1. When considering DPE versus labor epidural analgesia, the results regarding 1 and 2 above, which are the quality of the block and the time it takes for the block to um, start working, those remain equivocal looking at the literature. Wilson et al. published in Anal- Anesthesia and Analgesia in 2018 a randomized controlled trial where they showed a 2-minute reduction from 10 minutes to about eight minutes in the onset of analgesia using DPE when compared with labor epidural analgesia without a drug However, without a difference in quality of analgesia by 10 minutes. And even though this difference is statistically significant, the critiques of this method mentioned that it may not be clinically significant in this setting. Contrary to this result in 2017, Chow and colleagues published also in ANA, showing that using a DPE over LEA did not affect the time to achieve a block. However, they reported improved analgesia and coverage, specifically sacral coverage required from physician pop-up. Importantly, they also showed a significant reduction in the above-mentioned side effects, addressing our fourth point above. More recently, in 2022, Tan et al. from Duke tested DPEs specifically in the obese population where they decri- described obese as a cutoff of BMI above 35 kilograms per meter squared. Using a composite result, they did not find an advantage using DPEs over LEAs in a study of 66 participants in each group. Two key studies from 2023 included that of Medea and colleagues from Dr. Tseng's group at the Brigham, who were able to show that the butymicane ED90 dose was lower for DPE when compared with the LEA technique, suggesting lower use of local anesthetics. And then using a very elegant model emulating intrapartum labor convergences during delivery, Shaarao Yadal from Jill Myers group at the University of Arkansas demonstrated higher quality anesthesia and more importantly a faster onset of surgical block by more than two minutes, a figure that is surely significant if we were to consider the emergency during deliveries. However, while addressing the three points we raised before, there is still a paucity of information regarding our third point, the likelihood of catheter failure. And this is where our study comes in.
0: Yeah. So talk us a little bit about that. Talk to us about what was your hypothesis? So our
1: hypothesis was that epidural catheter placed using the DPE method will have a lower rate of replacement or failure. Would, and we defined failure as either the combination of requiring a replacement of a cat that are all required for a general anesthetic or GA for intrapartum cesarean deliveries. In order to do that, we looked at, um, our, we looked at the our trial of replacement rated our institution.
0: Would you please summarize your methodology for this study? Of course, our trial was a single-center
1: retrospective study that we performed at the Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston Massachusetts. At BIDMC, we have about 5,000 annual deliveries and about one-third of those are cesarean deliveries. Half of these cesareans are scheduled, while the others are either emergent or intrapartum. We reviewed the records for patients who delivered at BIDMC between June 2016 and May 2021, or overall a period of five years, and those who received labor analgesia. Naturally, we excluded patients who delivered either with the necessary delivery without label or analgesia, either scheduled or emergent. Overall, we reviewed a little over 19,000 or actual procedure. Our main outcome was the catheter failure rate in a meshed cohort of DPE and LEA or epidural space without puncture. Using propensity score matching, we were
0: able to create matched groups each with 759 procedures that we could then compare. Now, CSE, looking at the numbers of the procedures performed at your institution, CSE is commonplace at your institution with most pro- procedures actually performed utilizing this technique. Now, only one-fifth of the procedures were performed using DPE. Was there a p- particular propensity for DPE to be offered to patients with specific characteristics? For example, patients, maybe patients with, that are multiparose or patients with obesity. Indeed, our most common procedure is a CSE, and when reviewing these records, it was obvious.
1: Of over 19,000 procedures, a little over 80% were CSEs. BPEs were the least popular procedure at our institution during this cohort. Only 810 BPE procedures were included in our analysis, versus 2,667 epidural space without developed unctures. We examined population characteristics between our groups. We focus on those that we have previously been associated with catheter failures or with labor dystocia, which could indirectly lead to catheter failure. The most striking association was with BMI. The mean BMI in our LEA group was 30 versus 33.4 in the DPE group. When assessing for obesity using a BMI cutoff of 30 kg per meter square, the LEA group had 42% of patients meeting the criteria versus 58% in the BPE group. In other words, providers at our hospital were more likely to choose the DPE technique over LEA in obese patients, likely due to perceived difficulty in performing the procedure. We also that increased BMI is associated with longer labor and higher epidural catheter failures, which we had to consider in our analysis. Multiple gestations were also twice as common in the DPE group, about 4% versus only 2% in the standard epidural group, and the gestational age was slightly, uh, though significantly, lower in the DPE group. Another striking association is that of cesarean delivery, which occurred in 35.2% of the patients in the DPE group versus only 24.5% in the standard epidural group. This is a good time to remind and caution our listeners about the important difference between causation and association. While a reader may now make a conjecture that DPEs may cause cesarean deliveries, a more likely explanation is that DPEs are more likely to be placed, at least in this cohort, in patients who have higher risk characteristics, who are predisposed to cesarean delivery over those in the standard epidural group, explaining this association.
0: Yeah, I, I, that, that's a great observation, and it's very important for listeners to understand that and from what we were discussing here, it seems like a particular patient population that seems to be a good candidate for a DPE is the morbidly obese patient. What are your thoughts? Are there? Is this the only patient population that benefits from a DPE or is any other particular uh, population that benefits from a DPE uh, based on that information you gather from your institution? So,
1: As we saw above in the numbers we reviewed, the most striking association was that patients with increased BMI were most likely to receive DPE over a standard epidural in our cohort. This, however, can be generalized to patients in which the operator perceives a likely difficulty in placing an epidural successfully. It's also important to remember that these are the patients to whom we would recommend earlier epidural placement, also usually as secondary to perceived difficulty, which would explain their underrepresentation in the CSC group. I do not have data to support what I think, but my personal observation is that following the most recent trials, DPs have largely taken over the niche of non cse placements in our institution, where previously standard epidurals would
0: have been used. Now, would you please summarize the main results for your, of your study? Yes, I would love to, Antonio. As I mentioned above, the main outcome that we measured in
1: our trial was catheter replacement or failure in a matched cohort. We defined catheter replacement as requiring an additional or actual procedure and failure is either another procedure or the requirement for general anesthesia for a cesarean delivery. When we examined the matched groups, the catheter failure rate in our DPE group was six and a half percent compared to close to 10% in the standard epidural group. This translated to an odds ratio of 0.64 or an absolute risk reduction of 3.3% in catheter failure. Catheter replacement were similarly associated with the insertion
0: technique. Yeah, catheter replacement or catheter failure rate is an extremely important metric because again, we are we know that a failed epidural catheter for labor, it's going to be a failed epidural for C-section. So this 3.3% reduction at the end of the day could make a difference between a GA or an unnecessary general anesthetic or a very well-functioning epidural that allows the patient to have a procedure under a regional uh, technique. Um, Did you analyze your data using any other method beyond propensity score matching? Of course, we
1: examined the unmatched groups using several statistical methods. This was done both to strengthen the results with sensitivity analysis, as well as to identify confounders or other likely risk factors for catheter failure. Examining the univariate comparison of the groups further strengthened the association of epidural placements using DPE with patients at higher risk for failure, which the the odds ratio for failure was 0.74 in favor of DPE. It was not statistically significant. We did identify higher BMI or obesity, as well as lower parity or nulliparity and catheter dwell time to be associated with catheter failures. BMI and catheter dwell times are likely collinear as demonstrated by a Cox proportional hazards analysis that we also performed. We also analyzed the unmatched groups using logistic regression in a generalized linear model and mental Hensel odds ratio analysis. In all of these analyses, catheters placed using the DPE method were significantly less likely to fail.
0: Now, another benefit, uh, or another, uh, you know, generally reported benefit of the DPE is that its onset of analgesia is faster uh, than the traditional epidural and also the timing of when these failures are happening is it's important right it's a diff, there's a difference between an early epidural failure and a late epidural failure did you examine the time variable in your trial we did absolutely we did two different things as you mentioned right now
1: the difference between early failures and late failures we tried to see did catheters fail immediately after, within the hour after placing, versus failed later in their um, in the procedure, and we actually saw that the significant difference, a little surprising, wasn't in the one hour immediately after the procedure, but rather rather later. We didn't we gave took a step further from that, and we ran analysis. Um, Using Kaplan-Meier analysis, strikingly, catheters place placed using the DPE techniques, failed later on average 44.7 hours after placement versus 35.4 hours in those placed with the standard epidural group. We did a Koch proportional hazards analysis, which allowed us to incorporate failure times into our analysis as well and had similar results. Similarly to previous studies, we didn't see a significant difference in the requirement for epidural boluses between the DPE and standard epidural groups. However, the time to the first required bolus in the DPE group was significantly longer, 450 minutes compared with 367,
0: which means 83 more minutes before a physician-applied bolus was required. Yeah, so these are also great advantages of the DPE, uh, you know, better analgesia for a Longer period of time, it seems like, and the important thing here is that these failures are happening later, when you know there's a lot of variables to those late uh, failures, right? Um, what about the disadvantage of using DPE? One of the most uh used uh reasoning for not doing a DPE is that you know if you're not gonna give it any any medication, why do an unnecessary Uh, why unnecessarily violate the dura? What are your thoughts regarding that?
1: Right. I've heard that more than once, and I've heard um, people say, if you're going to put a spinal needle in, better give medication. But as we discussed above, some patients are going to be contraindicated or just less likely to have an advantage from a spinal dose um, so why really unnecessarily violate the Dura? Are we not increasing the, fight, the side effects? And that's the main concerns of providers that are opposed to performing DPEs that unnecessarily violation of the Dura, and the concern for increase in the most common adverse events of norexial anesthesia, those are the postural puncture headache, or PDPH, and the requirement for treatment of PDPH, namely epidural blood patches. In order to assess that, we examined both internal QI logs, where we document every postural puncture headache that we diagnose in our institution, but also um, validated this by, the, by looking at all of our procedure nodes, looking at blood patches administered in each one of these populations, the DPE population, the standard epidural population. And we saw that a very important result of our study probably not less important than the main result, is that there is no increase in the rates of either PDPH or the requirement for epidural blood patches in either group. This was true to both the matched and the unmatched cohorts. In other words, as far as you can tell, there
0: is no increase in side effects in performing a DPE. Yeah, I think this is a result that we've seen all along with the literature about the CSCs and the DPEs so far. So it is all... Uh, very reassuring that DPEs are not increasing the um, the risk of a postural puncture headache or any other major complication. Now, I like I, I personally like using the DPE technique when I supervise or do procedures and encounters where the loss of resi- the resistance was questionable, as you mentioned before, difficult epidurals, patients with morbid obesity. To me, those are great candidates for the dpe technique now a study published in anesthesiology titled quality of labor analgesia with dpe versus standard epidural techniques in the obese Parturients," a double blind randomized controlled trial suggests that there is no difference between the CSE versus the dpe what are your thoughts regarding this study but this study is very important it does show that when considering the composite result
1: There is no advantage in using a DPE over a standard epidural in this obese population. However, the reader should be cautioned from ascertaining the significance of each component of this result when interpreting the results. Given the size of the groups, the study is likely not powered to detect catheter failures alone in this population. This is where the strength of retrospective trials is really demonstrated. The large population size allows us for the detection of less common and even rare events that require a large sample size to notice. Another thing to consider about this trial has to do with group composition. While we generally tend to think of BMI over forty kilograms per meter square as high risk on the labor and delivery floor, the study used a thirty-five kilograms per meter square cutoff. We can't tell if the results would have been different if a cutoff of forty was used instead. And lastly, this trial is another example of heterogeneity in studies performed in this field. It is not unlikely that the lack of significant difference demonstrated here results in the expertise of the anesthesiologist performing the block. With an experienced provider, the midline confirmation that is achieved by DPE may not play a significant role as when displayed by less experienced providers. This is echoed by the secondary result in our trial showing that the failure of catheters wasn't significantly different in the first 60 minutes following the procedure the window within which you'd expect to replace a catheter that isn't in the epidural space
0: yeah that that again it's very important right because you know it is the the as you mentioned that the actual there's a paper from dr booth that actually show at least in the csc patient population that you would think that you were able you will be able to detect failed epidurals later given the spinal portion but in their study interestingly they found that they were able to recognize failed epidurals earlier rather than later in the CSE group which I always thought it was very interesting probably because the patients were very sure what a working epidural or labor analgesia was and they were probably very eager to report that they did not feel very comfortable uh, once the epidural catheter was not necessarily working uh, later on during labor.
1: Right, and you could imagine that this also owed to the provider being more comfortable, with a comfortable patient who's not no longer arriving in pain and able to interrogate the catheter and get a, a result. And, and that actually is a super important result and needs us, we don't shy away from providing a CSC to a patient who's uncomfortable um, just in order to say, oh, well, we're not gonna be able to detect a non-working catheter. And I think that's really important for people to recognize in this study.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. Now, other studies uh, looking into the DPE technique have looked at 27 uh, gauge needle, 25 gauge needle, do you think that the one of the theories of why the DPE actually works uh, better in terms of analgesia, um, it is because of translocation, the translocation theory, in which the some of the local anesthetic in the epidural space will move into the intrathecal space, creating better analgesia. Now, what are your thoughts regarding the translocation theory used uh, when? needles of 27-gauge needle, 27-gauge needle versus 25-gauge needles or 24-gauge needles are utilized?
1: I think that's another great example of the heterogeneity in these um, studies where there is no standardized method to perform the needle-through-needle technique. Uh, different institutions will use different equipment, meaning sometimes different gauge of needles and uh back in the early 2000s, two different studies um one coming out of the brigham and the other if i remember correctly out of lake forest showed that one study used 27 gauge needles and wasn't able to show a difference in the onset or quality of the block whereas the study using a 25 gauge needle did show that difference and as an indirect result uh there's is, there is some assumption that it's the gauge of the needle that makes a difference. However, to the best of my knowledge, there's no evidence that compares these needles head-to-head or does a direct comparison of the needles. As I mentioned in the beginning, we use a 26-gauge gertie marks needle, so a pretty thin needle, as part of our CSE and DPE procedure. And these results were obtained using this 26-gauge gertie marks needle. This is a fairly small gauge, and yes, it's enough to demonstrate what we showed with the reduction in failure of catheters. While we can't tell that a larger drop puncture would allow for more translocation for the results, we do know that larger holes are associated with a higher risk of post-drop puncture headache. Personally, I'd prefer a 26-gauge needle for a CSE or an APE, and ideally not larger than a 25-gauge needle when performing single dots spinal injection.
0: Now you talk about the heterogeneity in the studies, and, and I agree 100%. And, and that's part of the problem of why it's so hard to come up with a definitive conclusion about the DPE because there are so many variables. Similarly, there is a there seems to be some um, concerns about the translocation of the uh, the translocation theory. When utilizing a continuous epidural infusion versus a programmed intermittent epidural bolus infusion, do you think that this, there is a difference between uh, these two infusion techniques?
1: So that's a great question, and it absolutely deserves more studying to be answered well. There's emerging data that the uh, program intermittent epidural bolus technique, or the PIEB, results in lower use of local anesthetics with equivocal results, and some studies even showed a superior analgesic effect. However, these trials were mostly designed using high concentration solutions and not the more commonly low concentration solutions or walking epidurals used today. Conceptually, the small hole in the Dura created during a DPE placement could allow for greater translocation of medication from the epidural space to the subarachnoid space, with exerted effect for labor analgesia. On the one hand, this may be even more beneficial with an intermittent BOSE approach, but one could also postulate that the increased pressure during BOSE administration obviate the advantage of the Dural puncture. For instance, in 2021, in ANA, Song and colleagues published a beautiful trial from Shanghai looking at DPE versus standard epidurals with continuous epidural infusions, which I'll refer to as CEI, versus the PIEB technique. They enrolled 120 women in three arms and showed that DPE had faster onset, less sacral sparing, and then with PIEB, they had less drug use. However, they did not have a standard epidural PIEB group and in essence, what they compared was PIEB to CEI in patients receiving DPE, not standard epidural to DPE in patients on PIEB. Jan et al. showed similar results in their in four-group design that recently got published in Medicine. Most recently, Lin et al. published in the Journal of Pain Research and showed, that, again, faster onset with DPE and less sacral sparing would compare with standard epidural. However, by 10 minutes, both of these groups achieve a similar rate of adequate analgesia and the clinical significance is likely mostly that of avoiding signals pair.
0: Yeah. So again, perhaps the heterogeneity of the spinal needle gauge versus the use of a continuous versus a PEEP may be why two meta-analyses have demonstrated no or minimal difference between labor epidural versus DPE. That is my thought. What are your thoughts? So first, it's important
1: to remember that most of these trials examine the onset and quality of the block using the DPE technique, while our trial was mostly focused on the successful use of the epidural catheter, which hasn't been measured by almost any other trial. As you mentioned, there's a lot of heterogeneity in how we provide liver analgesia, which is reflected in these trials. The method by which epidural catheters are placed, be standard epidural, CSE, or DPE, the gauge and type of needles that we use, 25, 26, or 27 gauge needles, gurley marks Sprout or Whitaker needles. The type of medication that we use, for instance, some institutions use rapivacaine versus uh, bupivacaine that they've used in our institution, using sufentanil versus fentanyl, et cetera, and the concentrations used. Many of these trials are factorial trials and true head-to-head trials examining a single outcome are getting harder to come by. If we were to examine what we know from the emerging techniques in labor analgesia, I think we could break it down to the following list of bulletins. PIAB most likely reduces the consumption of local anesthetics, and that has been shown in multiple trials we've mentioned some of these. DPE may or may not achieve analgesia faster, but it's likely to facilitate less sparing and faster onset of a cesarean anesthetic block. DPE is also associated with a lower rate of epidural catheter failures, reducing the requirements for catheter replacements or general anesthetics. And there is no increase in adverse events by puncturing the dura with the spinal needle when placing an epidural catheter.
0: Thank you for that great summary. I think you bring some excellent points. So really, thank you so much for that very detailed uh, summary of the the data that we have so far uh, regarding the use of DPE. Now, I would like to conclude these podcast with Dr. Berger's top five recommendations related to the use of DPE or our pursuit of improving labor and LGCI in general. Thank you for for giving me this opportunity. Um, I'll, I'll I'll
1: try to use this in a in a meaningful way um, to listeners, and I think my my advice being so. I'm I'm a fellow currently. I think I'm targeting more of the trainee population um, rather than the attending population. So I think that um, as you go through anesthesia residency, I hope you'll notice that labor analgesia is a wonderful field to practice and study. Like many things in medicine, practice today, everything we reviewed here is just the tip of the iceberg. And my first point would be there's so much more to learn than we have already described. And there are so many other things to discover. If you want to participate in this learning process, it's very easy to pick up a trial, pick up whatever role that you feel you're comfortable doing and join it because they, not only will you learn new things about anesthesia and analgesia, you'll learn more about yourself and you'll um, learn more about the, the field that you're practicing. Uh, my second point that I'd like to make is always strive to improve, always keep the bar high. It's not about reaching the bar, it's always about the um trying to be better each day uh i i like this quote. that i recently had a chance to visit nashville and visit the jack daniels distillery and i have a picture that i took that um i'm printing and framing on my own wall and it says every day we make it we'll make it the best we can and that's a motto that i think we should all live by when you are on the labor and delivery floor this leads me to my third point Know what tools you have in your toolbox and then when to use each. Just in this short podcast, we reviewed probably um, a couple dozen papers and we talked about at least three different tools that we can use for labor analgesia and the conversion to labor anesthesia. Remember that you have multiple tools and always know um, which which one to use at the right option. Fourth, and always important for our life in medicine, remember to consider any evidence you come across in a critical manner, and remember the advantages or disadvantages of different study methods. Specifically, don't confuse causation with association when you consider these evidence. And then the last point is an advice I was given during my residency training. I've taken this with me, and I've shared this with every, um, every trainee that I come across, and really every person who's, uh, who, who cares to listen? Each day when you wave up, try to learn one new thing and help at least one person. And each day feel will feel like it had a meaning in your life. And I hope that at least one of these points will ha- help one of you in this long path of training.
0: Thank you so much. That That is an amazing uh, top five recommendations. I think that Listeners should hear these recommendations uh, intently. And, you know, it, it is, as you mentioned, like the best way that we have to provide the best labor analgesia we can to our patients, which is our ultimate goal, is to keep learning something every day, is to keep improving every day. The moment we start thinking about, well, what I've been doing has been working, is the moment that we stop we, we impede growth in our field. So we need to keep innovating. We need to keep on learning. Thank you so much. I think that uh, your five recommendations were very powerful. And uh, I thank you so much for your time. This was a great podcast. Thank you so much for, for your time. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute pleasure. I really hope we can do this again someday. Thank you so much.